Welcome back to What Would Mozart Do? Today's conversation is hitting closer to home as I invited my brother Peter de Villiers over for a chat. He grew up playing various instruments and ended up being a professional drummer. He is now a co-founder and chief product officer for Macanta Software Limited. Peter talks inspiringly about the value and importance of failure, the creative power of criticism and the importance for musicians and business people alike to be open to the opportunities embedded in change. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm very good, mate. I'm, I'm very good, thank you. Good. So uh, thank you for joining me in this chat. You have had an interesting journey with music. You started, I believe it was with the cello, and then at some point the French horn. Yeah, I think I, think I had... I had a piano lesson oh. that went about as well as the single violin lesson I heard. Ooh, um, so you did start <laughs> early. <laughs> yes, yes, I settled on the cello, which, which I loved. And then, How long did you do that for? I think a couple of years, and then the teacher left. Mm-hmm. Didn't like the options of the other teachers. Right. So I decided to change instrument instead and played the French horn. Um, good old Mr. Muir was my teacher. I didn't speak English. He claimed to speak English, but it was in a heavy Scottish accent. Um, but we muddled along for two and a half, I think, three years, something like that. I really liked it. But just to give some background, this was all in South Africa, right? Yes, it was. So by the time I was 11... I started playing, I obviously played in classical music, orchestras and everything up to this point. But then I started playing the drums and classical percussion, um, mainly classical percussion from a training standpoint, but I played the drums. And then I ended up doing primarily drums and Latin percussion. And I was one of those wonderful students who didn't take any exams. <laughs> Keep the <laughs> I, curriculum I, 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 interesting, right? Yes, I, I think I was, in in truth, I was just fortunate enough to be a big fish in a small pond and I could get away with it. I, I was good enough to get away with it. The, the one orchestra I couldn't get into because I didn't have the, the credentials. Right. By the time they would have me, I didn't want them anymore. Yeah. So. <laughs> You've graduated. <laughs> so did you ever think about doing music, well, percussion in an orchestra as a career? Not in an orchestra, no. I don't, I don't think I ever, as much as I absolutely adored performing with orchestras, I never, I never considered it as an option. I obviously, once I started playing the drums and I was an 11-year-old kid and um, I just wanted to be a rock star, yeah. and play the drums and did play in several bands. And I, I at the time, I felt that that's what I wanted to do. But, ne- but never, it just never seemed, I suppose my, my perspective on it was that, yes, you might play in an orchestra, but actually you're just a teacher. Right. That as a child, everyone I knew were full-time music teachers who sometimes played some concerts. Right. So, so I think the, the idea of actually what you do for a living is play in symphony orchestras or the like was just not, not 
So so rock bands, jazz bands, um, that kind of stuff um, always interested me, and and I, I would have been keen to do that at the time, but but never classical really. Right. And so what's what was your journey into bands then? So I started playing the drums when I was eleven, and joined my first sort of rock band, I suppose, when by the time I was 14 and then joined my first, um, what I describe as a proper band when I was 15. I think all the other guys in the band, the, the youngest other guy in the band was 20 or 21 mm-hmm. or quite a bit older than me. They'd already had some success. They were in the small pond we were in. They were the best known heavy metal band and we got we we recorded an EP and we got to number four on Barney Simon's heavy metal charts um, and did some gigs around the country, um, played different things. And at the same time, I still, um, I worked with Noel Stockton and played in his jazz band, different jazz configurations and, and learned a lot from him. And he always had a lot of time for me and was very generous. Um, so that's so that's really how I got into it, and then then I left and came to the UK. Yeah, it was just a strange journey because I then met people, and I started working in a bar, and it just so happens that the guy who used to play the drums for Shaken Stevens drank in the bar, owned a recording studio and a publishing company. I ended up working for him and meeting different people. Ended up being a sound engineer in nightclubs in London where I met, I did the sound one night for someone, for Tim, and we got talking, had the same interests, and we ended up being in a band for several years. Quite random, really. And and what was that band's name? Crane Brothers. The Crane Brothers, of course. No, no, Crane Brothers. No definite article. Oh, right, just Crane Brothers. Yes. So, and... (laughs) And did you mainly travel in the UK with Crane Brothers, or did yeah, you yeah, we we, we abroad. Played, yeah, we we played a gig in Greece once as part of a Battle of the Bands thing. That was loads of fun. It was really great sitting on a Greek island playing a gig with the sun going down mm-hmm. over the ocean. But no, that's that's mainly what we did. Didn't the Greek islands appeal enough for you to stick to the band? Uh, no, is the short answer. Um, or any island, really. The, the the reason I stopped, for me, it was a cut-off stop. It wasn't that it faded away. Is by that time, I had met Sophie, and I just came to the realisation that while, in order for a band to be successful, you need to be on the road 35, 40 weeks of the year. Mm-hmm. Once a band is successful, you need to be on the road 35, 40 weeks of the year. And I, I, I want to be home with my wife and kids. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, I just came to the realization that even if this thing that we were doing became ridiculously successful, it still wouldn't actually give me what I want. Yeah. And therefore, the pursuit of it just seemed completely pointless and foolish and once I had reached that realization I had to stop there was no no next band practice or anything like that it was just 
no, I'm not doing this anymore. And so the, it was obviously a, a big cutoff for you, but that realization, how long was the period, do you think, for that to sort of filter through and for you to get to the final decision? Or was that journey also something quite specific and short? The coming to the realization and then taking action on it was really quick and a very short space of time. How long did it build up to it? I don't know. What was I at the time? Maybe 29. So it took <laughs> it took that long. It, it's like I look out my, it's like you say, well, when did the sun come out? Well, I'm looking out here. It's cloudy. It's likely to rain, but the sun is there. Yes. And then the clouds <laughs> open up and all of a sudden, oh, it's, the sun's out. It's like, well, actually, it was always there. So I suppose it, it was an undercurrent, but I, I don't, I, um, I don't recall a process that got me there because mm-hmm. um, by that point I I mean I, I did do a music degree popular music performance in the UK and this was a while after that but so you needed to make a change yeah just turned the light off and left the room oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's also I mean that's very much like your personality when you when you decide on something you just get on and do it there's not yeah. you don't i don't think you take much time to mull over things it's, oh, do. it doesn't mean that you're reckless but once it comes to the decision point you just go for it there's no yeah, hesitation well, once, once you've once you've decided take action mm-hmm. take your time deciding but at some point you have to decide and once you've decided then take action and have momentum but because once you've decided it's like well what's the point mulling it over anymore it's just push the button and go so then fast forward a a few years you've you've done various jobs and ran companies etc and you now recently very recently started a new company a canter yeah yeah um it's Really, December 2018, mm-hmm. that sort of became the focus, um, but started working around it probably in middle of 2017, something like that. Right. right. So it's something that's been under the under the covers for much yeah yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's mccanter the product i saw the first glimmers of it mm-hmm. in march 2016 and then used it in my own business for my customers and then joined forces and that is now all we do is i'm one of the co-founders and then i'm the chief product officer mm-hmm. for mccanter software limited so what is it? Um, what is Macanta? It's a it's a platform that allows you to build a custom CRM for your business without the cost or risk or time of custom software development. So, if you think about Wix for websites, mm-hmm. that's what we are for CRMs, primarily targeted at large scale or franchise operations, and. Because this is the the goal of this podcast, I would love you to draw together your skills that you've learned mm. in music to 
you now being the co-founder of this company that is growing and successful. So what qualities have you brought over into business? Yeah, it's interesting. It's, I'm not sure if there are qualities that I've brought over. It's just the key thing for me is the acceptance and willingness to fail again and again. Because you might not consciously be aware of this, but that is what rehearsals are. And when you're playing in a symphony orchestra, you've got 50, 60 people all together failing in front of each other to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. With with a goal in mind, yeah. everyone sort of understands what the goal is. What what is the thing we want to get to? But the first time you're handed the music at rehearsal and you sit down and play, it's likely to be awful. <laughs> There's something unique about that environment, which everyone every everyone's fine with that. Everyone understands that until the curtain goes up will fail several times. Mm-hmm. And be open and, to fail. Yes, and, and, and not be overly critical when it happens, who it happens to. It's in service of getting better, in service. And, and it's the same. I mean, I, I see with my kids practicing music as well. I mean, it's one of those things. You, when you pick up an instrument for the first time, you just can't do anything with it. I mean, drums and piano have that strange thing where anyone who walks past a drum kit or a piano can get a sound out of it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder with a clarinet (laughs) Um, or or a bassoon. But, but, But generally, when you pick up an instrument, there is no way you're succeeding for quite some time. And and how I take that back to our businesses, that is what software development is. You you write some code, push it into the app. Does it work? No. Go back. Or it's there, it works. Six months down the line, actually, this would be a lot better. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's it's quite interesting because we can keep track of it in our software development because every time you push to master, when you add the new code to the live production version that people are using, the number increments, so the version number. So I think we're on 155.142 or something. So the next version will be 0.143. So you can imagine how many versions we've had. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's never from the approach of that failed. Mm-hmm. It's just... How do we do the next one better? And, and it's that, that iterative, being comfortable with that iterative process, I think is, is something that, that was instilled in me through playing music. Mm-hmm. And, and that benefits me a lot now in, in my role within the business because I'm responsible for the product. I run the product team. I give them a brief. I review when it comes back and test and, and everything. And, then, mm-hmm. and sometimes we can go 15 times a day back and forth between me and the developer working on a particular feature. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, not quite like this. Change that. No, it's still not right. Change that. But it's, it's never, there's never a feeling of you're doing it wrong and I'm annoyed. It's always just, no, it's not quite that. I mean this, do that. Yeah, that's fine. Now on to the next one. Do you think that is the experience of failure slash goal setting or reaching goals 
Do you think it's different with musicians or in, in the arts because, or potentially, because it's so personal and emotional that, yes, we, we know it's a part of you have to repeat, you have to practice, etc. but it's sort of you're, you're pushing yourself towards this goal, whereas what I'm hearing from what you're saying is you're much more reveling in that journey of, of really clarifying something and making it better instead of thinking that it's, that it's a failure and you have to beat yourself up for it. And yeah, that, well, that, that beating yourself up becomes the motivation. But, but no, all, all, all we have is the process of refinement. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's what you have because even, okay, you've got a recital two weeks from now. The reality is you can die in 13 days and never play that recital. So all you have is the refinement you are busy with right now. And I, I, I enjoy that part of my job as much as I enjoy the, the feedback we get from customers when they're happy with a new feature or whatever. It's building the puzzle. Yeah. And, and, and the, the act of building the puzzle. Yeah, not just the end result. And, and I, I'd say from a performance perspective and preparation, that is, if not more, at least as important as the performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I, I think we so often in performance get the sense that, especially the day, if, if it's a huge production or huge concert you've worked towards, the day afterwards, it's sort of, oh, oh okay, well, it's, it's over. And I that's think it's important in, to enjoy the journey more. Yeah, of course not. Because he, I can't remember, is it buyer's remorse or whatever? I can't remember what it's called, but you go and buy a new car. You are never as happy with that car as the day you drive it away from the shop. Yeah. Even the next morning, driving to work in it for the first time, you are not as excited as you were the day you picked it up. So how do you, Peter, keep the, the ball rolling then that from one day to the next, the excitement if not stays the same, that it increases. So I suppose it connects with goal setting, etc. What what is it? Yeah, that you do? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not really sure <laughs> that there's an element of it that I just don't know any different. Mm. I have always just had this this curiosity to try again and to see if it's any better. I mean, to the point of it being ridiculous. I remember when we were growing up as kid or kids, all the rubbish behind the garage. There was the carburetor of a lawnmower, right, in and amongst all of that. And I discovered this carburetor so many times, <laughs> and, tr- and, and tried to work out: is there anything I can do with it? There was nothing I could do with it two weeks ago, but maybe today, yeah, there's something I can do with it. It could serve a purpose. And, and, and it's the same, building Lego, building software. There's just, there's always the, 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 a slight improvement here or an improvement there. And I think that's something that I enjoyed about playing music as well, is you, you, you're, never, you're never sure where it's going to come from. 
what what is the comment what is the understanding that you suddenly have of the piece you're playing that that just elevates it yeah effortlessly and it's it's op- being open to chance isn't it yeah because that yeah. that's constantly at play yeah I, i'd agree with that and i think there's also there's if i think about in our business there's the willingness to change so a thing that we use a lot is and I'll give Daniel Priestley credit here for it is directionally correct actions okay talk more about that well it's like life is life is not the way Usain Bolt runs the 100 meters a straight line from here to there I'm done very fast it's not it's far <laughs> more like a drunk man stumbling home hmm generally in the right direction, knows where home is, but there's a couple of steps this way and then fall off the curb here. And But but directionally heading in the right place and just fine, keep going. And, and I'm still heading towards that point. I'm not there yet and I veered off a bit. And it's, it's being willing to adjust, mm-hmm. make those changes. And I suppose another thing that I can recognize that was present when I was doing music and studying music is feedback and criticism. You're always good at giving criticism constructively and, you know, so who would you say from, from the people you learned music, who's the person that criticized you the most or taught you the essence of good criticism? Not necessarily only one. I mean, are there instances that you now can look back at and think, oh, yeah, that's a lesson I learned there that that I'm obviously doing all the time now? Yeah, it's interesting. You didn't go with that question where I thought you might, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm aware that growing up and when I was playing music, I, I much more had the approach of, I know this is right and this is good. Hmm. So this is how I'm doing it. Inherently. Yeah, and, and, and it meant that in performance classes in my three years at university, I pretty much got the same feedback all the time. Hmm. I know I got better, but there were one or two things that was without fail weekly feedback. So is that you now giving criticism on the criticism you were given on the quality of the, the teaching or is it specifics in your own playing that you that were p- perhaps not as strong as the rest and it needed constant reminding no it's something that even at the end of three years didn't change because i kept arguing with it aha <laughs> when when i played mm. i never smiled no matter how much i was enjoying it it just this is the way I looked when I played. Everything was really close to me. I didn't have to move much when I played. Mm-hmm. And so the, the criticism I got was, you need to relax more. And I'm thinking, I'm relaxed. <laughs> yeah. And the other was uh, my left hand, particularly on the snare drum, I was constantly told that I'm holding it too tight. And, and then I look at it and I think, well, it's not tight here. And hey, I, I I could be completely wrong, 
but I don't think it held me back. And and I also, I, I was also aware of that some of my favorite drummers who are extremely successful and revered mm-hmm. don't play with the technique even resembling what I was being told week in and week out, you have to do it like this, you have to do it like this. Yeah. And, and, the, and, and the interesting thing is if I think of two people whose, whose criticism I would take on board really, really easily and who I learned the most from, they, they, they never focused on that. They always focused on what does it sound like? Why did you play this here instead of that? What's the function of this within the music at this point in the piece? And I learned loads from that. But the constant, well, you need to do this and you need to sit and practice and you need to be able to do it at this speed and all these things, just it just never got in because I was far more interested in just playing the music. Mm-hmm. So would you say then criticizing or teaching criticism would be teaching this skill of being of objectively looking at what you're creating yourself and responding to that? I think that can be useful. I'd say probably, if, and, and, and it's a difficult thing to do, but criticism as questions, mm. I just think are far more effective because it, it one causes, but it also provides the person on the other end of the conversation with an opportunity to think mm-hmm. and to discover. If you just say, that's wrong, do it like this, mm-hmm. th- th- that's so he- such a massive part of our workflow in our business where I, I do a mock-up of what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. But everyone in the team knows I want it to do this, but it doesn't need to, it, it doesn't need to be the way the mock-up is right. because... I surround myself with people who are far better at what they do than I will ever be. So I trust them to do it. And, and without fail, it comes back better than my mock-up every time mm-hmm. because I allow them to do that. And, and, and we have a work environment where they have a skill set and we pay them for their skills and knowledge. We don't just pay them for, well, I want this done this way. And, and there are instances where there's a misunderstanding or whatever about functionality, but it's always, this will be better because of this. Fine, do it. So do you think that openness to other expertise influencing your process, is that something that you would draw a parallel with, for instance, playing in the, in the orchestra? Because you can't, well, apparently you can't play the violin or the oboe or something like that, but you can play the percussion and you know those other skill sets in the orchestra. Mm. They, everybody working together create this wonderful performance. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think there's great value in the experience within an orchestra or any ensemble regardless of size mm. but especially within an orchestra where you 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 really learn the awareness of the sum is greater the, the whole is greater the sum of its parts but also on one level you are insignificant here there are mm. 60 people and unless you're the one with a stick at the front mm-hmm. you are one of 60 and that's it but on the other hand 
at the same time, if you were to not play your part, it would be very obvious. Mm -hmm. That's that's something, and I think it's just symptomatic of the instruments that we've played. It it was interesting for me when I was in my undergrad, and I started playing the piano in the orchestra rather than concerto work, mm. being within the ensemble itself. That feeling of insignificance, which up until that point, you, I've you never used experienced. To be the star of the show. Yeah, be that as a concerto player or because you play a solo recital. So every note you're playing is important in the moment and everybody will mm. hear every note, arguably. And then starting to play in the orchestra and just realizing but there's this whole massive music making going on around you. And at one point I realized I might not even be heard. And that was the point that the conductor said, why aren't you playing? You you need to be louder. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think there's a lot in there, in that, and and you're, uh, from my playing in bands perspective, it, it's perhaps more apparent, where you are, you are the backdrop for what's going on. Mm -hmm. But there's also, and, and this frustrated me at uni a bit, is there are some people who are technically extremely good, far better than I ever was, partly because they worked an awful lot harder than I did, but they couldn't play music. Stick them in a practice room by themselves, and if you stand out the, outside the room, you'd think, bloody hell, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Put them on stage with a bass player and two guitarists, and they can't string it together because all of a sudden they have to play music mm -hmm. rather than just their instrument. They have to negotiate. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you have to. It's it's a bit like moving through a crowd. Sometimes people make way for you. Other times you let people pass, and mm -hmm. it, it, it's that kind of thing. Where and 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 I think that that's an incredibly valuable skill or awareness to have mm -hmm. and i and i can certainly see how that because it's also within our business we work really hard to make sure we are not the smartest people on the team okay because otherwise we are the bottleneck yeah and and i and, and it's the same in sports and i always found it with music you play with people better than you and it elevates your you, you discover ability that you didn't know you had yeah it ups your but brain. it's because you're playing with people who are far better than you. Yeah. And and you always want to do that. Always make sure when it's like in property investment, get 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 the cheapest house on the most expensive road you can afford, not the most expensive house in the cheapest road you can afford. Yes. It, it's um if if you surround yourself with people who who can elevate your ability, you can do a lot and 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 we we work hard within our team we try and work with people who intimidate us <laughs> with, with their level of skill and knowledge mm -hmm. because it forces you to step up. Do you feel then that you're, you have to answer to them that because they are better at their skill than what you are at their skill? Do I have, to, it, heed, do I have exactly. to heed to everything they say? No, no, no. We, we still, and I suppose it comes down to domain expertise. We had a very interesting conversation. We're changing some of the underlying infrastructure of our software, and there was a particular problem we had to solve. Mm -hmm. And for this change of the, the tech stack, 
we actually got a consultant who's very experienced and for this particular technology that we're looking at you can't get away from the guy if you google search anything about it, he is there he's doing the talks he's, he's extremely knowledgeable but we still had an hour and a half conversation with him with me making sure he actually understood what we were trying to do mm-hmm. and for the first 60 percent of the conversation it wasn't clear to him and, he, and his advice was the wrong advice mm-hmm. but that's because we have the domain expertise of our product. And once he got what we were trying to do, we very quickly got to a solution and the right layout for the technology we're looking at. Yeah. So it's not a case of just taking their word at the start of a conversation and bowing to what, what those people say. Yeah. But, but it's, it's, it's being able to, and, and it, it works in music as well, but being able to test yourself against their knowledge and experience. And it's having a clear vision. You obviously had and have a clear vision of what you wanted. And it was more a case of effectively communicating that vision, which brought him to understanding it. And I I suppose this this often happens in, in music as well, that my vision and your vision for this piece might not be the same but then when we are bringing it together the end result if it's good collaboration it the end result is something that is clear um, but also and being sometimes happy it's that not sometimes the, being happy that sometimes the end result is this isn't going to work yeah you, you 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 are under no obligation and you'll be under a very severe false expectation if you think you can work successfully with everyone so it, it, it was really striking to me. I was in my late teens, maybe. Mm-hmm. And Joseph, I watched a, a VHS tape, for those of us who remember it, of <laughs> the making of a Joe Satriani album. Mm-hmm. And Glyn Johns is the producer, um, very respected British producer. Andy Fairweather low on rhythm guitar, Nathan East on bass, Joe Satriani on electric. And for the vast majority of the album, it's Manu Kachi on the drums. And the one track, they spent two days recording it and recording it and recording it, and it just did not work. Mm-hmm. So there's a different drummer on that track on the album, and it works perfectly. I think it's Jeff Campitelli who's on it. And, and it works really well. But that in no way diminishes Manu Kachi's ability. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't diminish the producer's ability to get the right thing out of Manu. Mm-hmm. It's just for that particular work of art, he wasn't the right ingredient. So I, I don't know this, this mm. that you're talking about. So what was it that didn't work? What, what was it that was lacking that this other drummer brought? I think fundamentally it was the sound Mm-hmm. and the, the, the texture and the, the structure of the emotion and energy behind the playing. Mm-hmm. It's not that Manu couldn't play the part. It's just when he played the part, it did not sit right. In that particular track. In that particular track. That's Everyone else is the same. 
and but but get and and, and it's the same you can it, it can come across in acting or anything like that yeah. you do a pilot of a of a movie or a screen test or whatever with one actor and it's a bit mediocre and then you come to it and they've actually recast someone else and they somehow they set the whole script on fire yeah well, nothing else has changed they're delivering the same lines mm-hmm. but it's just pulled together it is very different it doesn't mean that the other version is wrong. It's just not the version that was the vision that yeah. that the artist wanted, and the and the collective performance. And that's why you get you get people who write music, release it, and it trickles along, and then someone else picks it up, does a version of that piece, and it's kind and, of and, and and yeah, and, it, and it's completely different, and it transforms. So Rick Rubin doing a lot of work with Johnny Cash, for instance did a track by Sting and a track from Nine Inch Nails and, and lots of different pieces and Nick Cave, lots of different things, but very much in that man in black, acoustic guitar, somber Johnny Cash way. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's so typical of the last few albums he made. And completely transforms the emotion and the meaning in those songs. And they were they they were great pieces in their own right before that. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think it's being open to, well, actually, someone can come and make a suggestion. And we, we, we get that in our business and we challenge each other a lot. But we get that where you've, you're going down a path and then another ingredient comes in that sometimes it's like someone turning the light on and just saying, well, no, it's the wrong road entirely. Change tracks. And you just sometimes need a fresh pair of eyes or ears, isn't it? Mm. But... but I, I think there are always fresh eyes and ears available. I think the skill is the willingness to change and to try again. And and that's what you do if we go back to the rehearsals and everything. Essentially, that's what you're doing. And when you're working, if it's, it's more working on stage and opera and that kind of stuff where you've got a director, it's not just playing the music and a conductor, but that there are more moving parts, then there's even more opportunity well actually let's try it this way let's try it that way and you've got lighting and stage sets and then then because you've got all these variables it's done well this is good but actually if we just change these two or three things it'll be so much better you try it and you realize "Mm, in my head yes but actually once it's on stage not so much we go back to the other one and try that but without i think the key for me is the, the the value that i've got from my experience learning and performing music and the different people I got to work with. It's very much nobody ever gets accused in those situations. It's just let's try this. Not quite as what we thought, but let's try this. Let's adjust this. And and as long as everyone comes to the table with that view, mm-hmm. then the end product invariably is much better. And everyone's invested rather than just being told what to do. Yeah. So th- something that, that jumped out that I want to go back to, you're saying being open to change. Now, with the, with the current pandemic, etc. I think this is, I mean, it, it's a scary time for the arts. It's a scary time for musicians, etc. But I think it's a golden opportunity for change and creating in a different way. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. It's 
it's a wake-up call. There are lots of industries that have realized, well, actually, we can do things this way or we simply can't do them that way anymore and, and we find new ways of doing things. And a lot of it will go back to the way it was. It's um, There's lots of talk about we don't have to work in offices and things anymore. And I, I saw a video of someone else the other day, yesterday, and he makes a very good point. He said we are social creatures. Mm-hmm. We are tribal creatures. We, 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 don't, we don't function well for extended periods of time in solitude. Yeah. Um, um, Sam Harris always points out, he says, well, there's a reason solitary confinement is a punishment <laughs> yes. inside high-security prisons. Mm-hmm. It is worse than being with a general population <laughs> in a high-security prison. So, no, I, I do think... and. The, the technology is available. It's all there. I think the way that I, I look at it, and you would have heard me talk about this before, is that there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple of things. A- average age, life expectancy for us in the UK now, I think, is 82, mm-hmm. maybe even higher. So that's, again, that whole thing of being willing to change and willing to fail and it, because you've got to keep this motor going for eight decades in total yeah and there's two sides to it on the one there's loads you can do and 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 if it doesn't work it actually doesn't matter because even even if 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 it so it's actually today it's six years ago that i called the liquidators for my previous business that failed right now that day i couldn't see today yeah, that's. I, I couldn't <laughs> see what what the outcome would be six years down the line, and none of us can. But I knew that I could do tomorrow, and then the next day. Mm-hmm. And, 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 at, and the, it's, at the time, you knew anything would be better than what the problem was at the time. Yeah, yeah. I guess. But, but also sure. at the time, I had I had none of the experience that I have in my job now and the skills that I'm using in my job now. There's aspects, but generally I had never created software before or anything like that. And I think I'm just extremely open that, well, okay, I'm now 41. I'm only halfway. Yeah. (laughs) On average, I'm halfway. So even if it all completely came crashing down, there's plenty of time to have another go. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and that's why I've, I think with, with, with the arts, I think that there's perhaps a mind shift that's required, which, which isn't available to other disciplines. So if, if you were studying physics, you can't really do it part-time. No. <laughs> it, it, it's not like you can have this job over here, but... Weekends and evenings, I'm a physicist. That's not really available. Mm-hmm. And in that instance, you some would think, well, yes, it's a hobby and it's an interest, but you, you're not your contribution will be. And and it's interesting. It, it, it didn't always used to be this way. That it was only university professors and 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 lecturers who got to write papers and invent things. Yeah. But I think with music or the arts. There, there is still, and whether this is, I think this might be a self-inflicted stigma on the arts mm-hmm. of, well, if I do anything else, then I have failed at this. 
if, if, if yeah. like you, if if, if 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 I don't do this full time, yes, and I don't do anything else, then I have failed at this. Do you th- where do you think does that come from? Because I, I mean, in various of the chats that I've had with with people for this podcast, this point keeps on coming up, and it's interesting how similar yet different people's answers are. Mm. So for you, where do you think? has this come from this mindset i i think it has to do with fame or the pursuit of fame or the perception of fame mm-hmm. because the reality is nowadays anyone who is actually well known as a singer doesn't have another job and therefore we perceive the only way to succeed in the arts is for it to be the only thing you do, even if it means you struggle to eat two meals a day. But it's like there was a guy when I ran the bar. Suffer for your art. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was a guy who who used to come in. He was a black cab driver, Mm -hmm. but he did have the odd acting role in an ad here or there or whatever. But all his mates always called him Dennis, the out-of-work actor. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> but, but he was fine. I mean, the guy, the guy was in his fifties, and, and 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 he had a few roles and whatever. But but he never felt that he had failed. Mm-hmm. It was just a thing he did, and fine. He drove a black cab because he's got kids and a mortgage and all of that. Yeah. But that also affords him to do this without it being a detriment to his family and to other things he wants to do. But I I, I think it is it, it it's a bit of it is self-inflicted in the arts because I suppose if you're a mathematician, you can go into data science and, and there's there are engineering. There are lots of avenues where you can still feel you are using that skill. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think artists find it a lot harder to try be, be, because everyone wants to be Michelangelo. And it's like, well, actually, no, there isn't room. But I think it's also but it, doesn't, to do, but it doesn't mean you're not a good good artist. Yeah. But I think it's also to do with the fact that the amount of dedication and the years of work, like dogged focus on the pursuit of being able to play this instrument or to sing or to to be an actor or painter or whatever art form. I think it's during that time actually that those blinkers are created and therefore it's all just focused on this one goal and then life happens and it's it's difficult to sort of allow yourself the bigger scheme yeah i I don't think that's particular to i don't think that's particular to the arts though okay because you would find lots of people who so there were people at uni with sophie studying they, they've, they've wanted to be doctors for as long as they can remember they did everything to get into medicine school they get to year five of medical school and realize well actually i'm out well, i can't do this other people who should have come to that realization keep going <laughs> and i think that there's an element of the sunk cost fallacy where well i've put 10 years into this it will be a waste if I stop now. It's like, well, actually, no, you've lived 10 years of your life. It's not, you haven't haven't sacrificed 10 years of your life. You just lived 10 years of your life. Mm -hmm. So live 10 more, do do the next thing, do do more of the same, do it differently. 
the, the opportunities are available and to be a successful anything doesn't mean you have to be a hundred percent that yeah so i mean th- there's really good examples of this so joe rogan who started out as a kickboxer jiu-jitsu martial arts extremely successful at a very young age mm-hmm. started doing stand-up comedy and extremely successful at that now has 10 years in he's been doing his podcast for 10 years he's got i think he's got over a million downloads a month he's just signed a hundred million dollar deal with spotify now the hundred million dollar deal was never an option for the yeah. kid who was doing kickboxing exactly but the fact that he is not a professional kickboxer doesn't mean he's failed. It's, no, it's just, I, it, I, I think, I, we I, think I, I just take a very, because of this, the 80 years sits in mm. my head and because I've got young kids and for me it's like, well, you know what, don't take this so, so seriously because if you pick the wrong thing, you can pick something else. You've got plenty of time left. Mm-hmm. But the other side that I'm really keen on for them to understand is Unless something goes wrong, you're going to have to find something to do for the next 60 years of your life. Yeah. Don't think it all rests on the decision you make today and don't allow it to rest on that decision. You get to choose again and again and again. Every morning when you wake up, you get to decide, am I still doing this? Is this still what I pursue? Yeah. Regardless of how many mornings I said yes, I can say no tomorrow. And that's, I think that is a, an important life skill that you're instilling in your children, because I think that's, that option is not always given, because I think people are so, for various reasons, but one reason could be that people are, are scared of how they would be perceived. You know, are they not dependable because they keep on changing from one thing to the next, etc.? But also what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that success and failure, on the one hand, are actually not these polar opposites that should not be thought of in the same vein. Because well, they're, they're, they're threads of the same cloth. Exactly. It's, it's intertwined. And I think it's really an, a complicated relationship between the two and it's our way of having to make sense of it because any success that you might have had was the result of several failures before it (laughs) and Um, could be could be the precursor to various other failures before there's another success mm, and and there's there's a thing that my business partner pete his dad always says is his dad or his mum that just always says Good or bad, who knows? <laughs> when, anyth- when anything happens, it's like, is it good or bad? We don't know yet. Yeah, we'll have to see. Um, and, and, and we forget about the failures because it's the successes that are put on pedestals. So a very good example for me is snooker player, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Mm-hmm. I think he's got 16 maximum breaks, competitive maximum breaks, so one four sevens. But he has played something like 11,930 frames of competitive snooker in his career. Mm -hmm. Five-time world champion, many other trophies. 
But if you think about it, so fine, he's got 15 or 16 maximums. That means, and he's got a thousand, last time I, I read this, he had a thousand and six century yeah. breaks. But that means he's got nearly 11,000 breaks in competitive snooker where he didn't get a, a century. Yes. <laughs> and 11,915 where he didn't get a maximum break. He failed to get the maximum break. He failed to get the century. He's still the best snooker player to ever pick up a cue. Yeah. So, and we we need to, unfortunately, I mean, I we we can talk for hours, but uh, we'll have to wrap it up. So, I would like you to just point out, perhaps, what you think business people can learn from music musicians, and what musicians can learn from the business world if you had to sum that up i, I think what what business something we we almost enjoy in our business but the numbers never lie and in in business getting funding for something is a part of business because things need to be paid for i i think the the arts in general and to an extent society in general in valuing the arts can learn something from it because mind you i was going to say because in business people get paid what they should be paid and they get paid commensurate with their skill but it's not always the case and and actually the reality is there's a vast the vast majority of businesses are actually just self-employed jobs yeah they're not actually in much different a position to what artists find themselves in. They're just trying to get the next job. But I do think from the arts especially, and, and it's almost, I, I, I think it's a bit like you, you go and start learning martial arts or you do meditation or something like that. I think people in business can benefit a great deal from learning to play an instrument at whatever level. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to play with other people, just just for that, the to, to a certain extent to 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 get your training wheels on for failure because you get to fail in these safe environments where it's inconsequential, and then you you just you then just grow the area of safe environment, mm-hmm. and you realise that the vast majority of things you might worry that you might fail over. No one will remember, and no one actually cares, yeah. and, and and it's not as big a deal as we make it out to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I think something they both have in common is the show must go on. It, it's 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 a very it's a very interesting skill to learn when you first start playing an instrument. To even when you make a mistake, you just keep playing. You don't stop. You just pick up and carry on. And even more so when you're in an orchestra. Mm-hmm. where you're playing with other people, fine, something goes wrong, but you just have to keep the, the bus is moving. And I think that, that, that has value in business as well, where it, it, it is the, the fact that the, the momentum needs to keep going. Fine, something has gone wrong. We'll do it be- better next time round, but it's, it doesn't mean everything has to come to an end or come to a halt. Absolutely. Well, Peter, thank you so much for a fantastic chat. And, That's all right. Um, no worries. And kudos to you for putting this together because it was an idea, and you've grabbed it and run with it. And it's 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 not 
naturally in your wheelhouse and you've embraced it and seem to be doing well with it. So well, thank you very right. much. Thank you. No worries. Right. See you later. See you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can find other episodes on your podcast provider. Do you have any questions for future guests or would you want to join in the conversation by being a guest yourself? If so, then write to me at info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.